Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In January of 2020, Bloomberg City Lab published an article about a new study from Pittsburgh researchers naming the best and worst cities for Black women. Among cities with at least 100,000 Black women, Cleveland came in dead last in terms of livability. In this city with a nearly 50% Black population, this news drops like a bomb. And reactions were mixed. Do you think Cleveland is really the worst for Black women? And what do you say? Uh, I say... It depends on the person uh, I ask. When I dropped it in one of my Black girl group chats, the emojis were just eye rolls. I'm not surprised. Not even a little. It's, it's heartbreaking and also embarrassing. Is it like this everywhere? Is it me? <laughs> like This city will make or break you. City of Black women that are looking around at their outcomes, their future, their past, and saying, this city makes me anxious. If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. On Living for We, we talk to Cleveland's Black women from all walks of life, from the CEO of one of our major healthcare systems to self-starting entrepreneurs, judges, lawyers, doctors, artists, students, and mothers who've experienced loss. We share stories from these women as change makers and architects of their own futures, celebrating their victories, challenges, and personal growth along the way. So is it really true what they say? Is Cleveland deserving of the least livable title? And what can we do to make lasting improvements for Black women in our city? I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this is Living for We, a project of connecting the dots between race and health from IdeaStream Public Media. When you see old movies or documentaries, it seems like Black people living in the South picking cotton all day in the hot sun for white landowners was a long, long time ago. But for our first guest, 94-year-old Miss Arnell Hendricks, it's like it was yesterday. I pick 400 pounds of cotton a day. Wow. I've heard stories about picking cotton. Was it as awful as I've heard? Yes, it's cotton? just as bad as you heard. It was on your back, your fingers. You get those uh, nails on your fingers and from picking, picking in the bowl of cotton. And the hot sun, it was like 110 degrees sun. And at the end of the row, there was the trees, and we go in the tree for a little while to cool off. Get some shade. Mm-hmm, for shade. Miss mm-hmm. Arnell is a former nurse. She's lived her entire adult life in the Cleveland area. She moved from a small southern town in 1948 during the great migration of Black people from the South to Northern cities. I was introduced to this wonderful woman by my mother. They both grew up in Eudora, Arkansas. Current population, 1,600 people, if I'm being generous. My mother and Miss Arnell went to school together. I just wanted to leave Eudora, you know, because there was nothing there. We had one grocery store, two drug stores, and that was the size of it. So it was no job for you to do anything. So, and I wanted to go to school and I got a, they call it like a scholarship, like $250 scholarship. Mm-hmm. 
To assess the current state of livability for Black women in Cleveland, we thought it would be interesting to hear the perspective of someone who's seen a lot of changes. She came here at a time when opportunities were very limited for Black women. So we packed up our equipment and went to visit Miss Arnell at her home on a rainy afternoon. And I'm going to call you Miss Arnell because that's what I call you all That's okay. Yeah, I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's how we are. But our elders, we say Miss Arnell, right? Right, right. Mm. Her mind is still very sharp, but a recent fall has created challenges, including learning to interact with her Alexa smart speaker. Oh, it's time for brunch. You need to stop and eat. Say what? That's your reminder that it's time for brunch. You need to stop and take a snack or anything. What did she say? The, the machine was saying it's time for you to have brunch. Are you hungry? No, I just Okay, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she reminds you, she really... (laughs) Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, shut up, shut up. (laughs) Just an average day at Miss Arnell's house. After moving to Cleveland with that $250 scholarship, she enrolled in nursing school and lived in the historic Phyllis Wheatley home in Cleveland. Phyllis Sweetie was a, a suppose been a home away from home for black girls. It was kind of like home where you had your bed, your bedroom was upstairs and they had a nice living room downstairs for you to, rece- to receive your company. And after 11 o'clock, you're supposed to be in it at before 11 o'clock at night. So my mother kind of enjoyed that. I'd be having some kind of strict restation, you know, like <laughs> she'd be in at 11 o'clock. She felt comfortable yeah. knowing you were staying there yeah. where they had yeah. some restrictions. Right. Now, how did things go at uh, nursing school? Oh, at nursing school, I went to Metro. To Metro Health? Mm-hmm. Here in Cleveland? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was called City Hospital at that time. I was the only black person in the class. You were? What was that like? Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, always she. They call me, you know, like, she did this. You know, some of those girls was prejudiced. I guess that's all they knew. But they always called me she, you know. They wouldn't call you by your name. Mm-mm. But so happened, I did real well in school. I mean, I did real well. I made A's and B's in class, and I I worked real hard to get what I had, what I got, you know. But they wanted to... Uh, uh, oh, it was two of us. They put the other girl out. I don't know why they put her out. There was another young lady who was black? Black, uh-huh, but they put her out. Well, that must have been disappointing, because if I would have been in your shoes, I would have been, like, happy to see yeah, another black person. person. Right. Yeah. And were you disappointed when you heard they put her out? Uh-huh. I really was. I was hurt. You know, then we always, we always sit together. That must have been, like, a real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Culture shock? Because here you're coming from Eudora, and I'm assuming you went to high school with mostly black kids, right? All black. All black. And then you come to Cleveland, and then you go to nursing school, and now you're the only black person. Only black person in the room. That must have been... frightening. It is, in a way. It was frightening? In a way. They look at you like they wonder what you're made out of, you know? During that time, people, the kids was really, I guess they didn't know anything else but to be prejudiced from their parents. They were prejudiced or something. Did you befriend anybody? Did you be, make any friends with anybody? I tried, yeah, but uh, it seemed like they were scared of me, you know? 
What was it like as a black woman working? Like what hospital? Well, I should ask first, like what hospital? You know, University Hospital in Metro. But what we had to do, if there was a white woman in the room, we we had wards, they call them wards, phobias in the room. And this white lady doesn't want to be in the room with the black woman. So we had to move the black woman out of that room to satisfy her. So if there were two patients in a room and one was black and one was white, if the white person didn't want the black person in there. We moved the black woman. Even with the patients, they would turn their light on. You know, they want to use the bathroom. And they would call, they want you to use, let them put them on a bed pain or a or whatever they needed. But they didn't think the white nurse should be doing it. So, you know, they would ask you to ask you for it. Can I have a bed pan? Can I have a urine? You know. Why the white woman just passed you and you didn't ask her, why didn't you ask her for one? But they thought this this is your job, you know. So you had to deal with some patients who were not exactly open-minded. A lot, most of them was not open-minded. So Miss Arnell, some people would look at you, you know, look at your life. Mm-hmm. You came here from Arkansas, mm-hmm. you became a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, would you say your life has been pretty good here in Cleveland? I would say, not really. You know, because a lot of people talk about, like, the discrimination that was going on in the South back then. Mm-hmm. But they talk as though, like, the northern cities, that that wasn't going on. It was. It was. Living condition, living area, you know, it has always been that way. It really has. What do I want? I want to be treated. I want justice and be treated just like you are being treated. Why should we have separate schools, separate area where we live? You can tell that white folks live in some areas, black folks live in the other area. And it's not that some of us wouldn't take care of our property. It's just that they that got us that way. Cleveland is notorious for being racially segregated. Even today, most black families are clustered on the east side. So imagine how bad it was back in Miss Arnell's day. Some suburban neighborhoods like Shaker Heights are proud about being diverse now, but black middle-class families suffered explicit discrimination while trying to move from the city to the suburbs for a better life, like so many other racial groups had done when they gained upward mobility. Did you ever have any trouble when you were buying your houses, you and your husband? Mm-hmm. We had problems. What kind of problems? Of getting along and I'm in the percentage that they want us to have it. At that time, loan was like 4%, and they want us to pay 6%. 6%. Which house was that for? The first house? Mm, or no, the house in Shaker? The one in Shaker. So they wanted you to pay above the interest rate. Mm-hmm. Did you have to end up having to do that in the end? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you do? One of my uh, one of my husband's friends was white, and he got the house in his name. So your husband's white friend had to get the house in his name. In his name for you guys. Mm-hmm. And then we had to transfer back in our name after he got the house. And that was in order so you didn't get stuck paying extra interest. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So what do you think when you hear that that study named Cleveland the worst city for black women? I think Cleveland is a bad place for black women. And it shouldn't be that the first black woman did so-and-so-and-so. The first black woman, it should be the first. It should have been happening all the time. 
We should be past that. Yeah. First That's what I'm saying. It should be like that all the time. We should, it shouldn't have to be said and done that we are the first so and so and so. No. Mm -mm. It would be nice if we were beyond Black women still having to be the first. Miss Arnell was likely one of a few Black nurses in Cleveland in the 50s. Now, in 2023, another nurse has broken a glass ceiling. Our next guest, Erica Steed, is the new CEO of Metro Health and, unsurprisingly, the first ever Black woman to lead a hospital system in Cleveland. While she's only been on the job a few months, she says her number one goal is to eliminate health inequities, inequities that she's experienced firsthand. And as we've explored on this podcast, that's a huge undertaking. We've been chasing this for centuries, right? We have yet to even scratch the surface on, on really what we can say, we've eradicated healthcare disparities. That's something I'm hungry for. I've I've always been a fan of of the work of Metro Health, mm -hmm. but the the Pittsburgh study for me came as just as part of my overall area of interest and, and focal point well before. So now it's it's come full circle full from circle. that, especially being a black woman and landing up dead last on on that list. It inflamed me. It it really did. My life story is all about pain. And uh, I've always been fueled by that. I was very young when I lost my mother to a very rare form of leukemia. First, she was misdiagnosed. She was late caught in terms of misinformation, delays, missteps and ball drops. And just long story short, my mother didn't end up passing away from the leukemia in and of itself. She ended up passing away from an experiment. And that experiment touched me so deeply because my mother nor nor her family were engaged in this process that she was being experimented on. And, you know, at the end of the day, the side effect of that experiment is what took my mother's life. Oh, my God. Had she recognized the fact that she was being experimented on and, and a huge side effect is death, 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 death. And she didn't know. I think that she would have made... A, a much more informed decision. Her family would have wrapped around her and enjoyed the, the final moments of her precious life as opposed to going through that pain and torment during the last several months of her life. This is what truly rocked me to my core. My baby sister, my younger sister, she passed away from breast cancer also. This is where it becomes a statistic, such a significant aspect of what we need to disrupt in this broken system. It wasn't until I actually went through these personal experiences that it resonated with me that this is an absolute calling. And I was in this place for a reason, to disrupt the brokenness, to reverse the centuries of inequity, to actually achieve the fundamental goal of health equity. And we also need to do a better job of representing those that we serve and start to break down that those walls of distrust that has been built up because of, you know, all of these various negative experiences. So I, I can honestly tell you from my own personal purview and my own personal experiences, I'm extremely guarded. It takes a lot for me to even share and open up 
to the various providers that I may may seek out just because I've had so many bad experiences. We need to do something about that, too, because that's part of the problem. One of the things that we're exploring with this podcast is, you know, that when that study first came out, it was a couple of years ago now. You know, some people say we went through a racial reckoning in this country. Has there been some movement? It's kind of what we're exploring, right? And some people will look at you <laughs> and say, there's an example. Some movement is actually happening. We have mm-hmm. a, the first African-American woman who is running a major healthcare system in this, yeah. in this city. So that's that's progress. It, it absolutely is progress. And, and I'm proud to say that I'm the first Black, first female, first nurse in 185 years to run this storied institution. There are only 16% of healthcare systems across the country are ran by women. And if you peel it back even further, less than 6% are minorities. And that encompasses both men and women, we still have some work to do. So where I'm absolutely proud is I represent a signal of hope, momentum, the motivation to continue to break down those chains and break down the barriers and and fight through the adversity and most certainly get comfortable being uncomfortable navigating ourselves through this very windy road. But it's still hard. But I can I can honestly tell you that I'm encouraged and very optimistic about the future, given the fact that we've made this groundbreaking, historic, courageous decision to say, I want to influence what that narrative actually looks like. Often when Black women are invited to have a seat at the table, it's because they're, they're needed to come in and clean up a mess. <laughs> Uh Uh-oh. Now I'm afraid where are you going to go with this question? If you haven't heard, there's been drama at Metro Health over the past few months. Drama that has nothing to do with Ms. Steen. Breaking news. The president and CEO of Metro Health, Akram Boutros, has been terminated. Akram Boutros, Metro Health's former president and CEO with nearly a decade of experience at the organization, was abruptly fired in the lead up to his scheduled retirement last December. It was alleged that he paid himself over $2 million in bonuses without the knowing consent or approval of Metro Health's board. Suing for wrongful termination, defamation, and damages. I have never in any way acted on an unethical matter that that is why, why I went to the High Ethics Commission and I was eager to go to them so that they can clear my name. It's been messy, to say the least. This case will likely be litigated in the courts for a while, but it was unfortunate that it blew up in the public eye just as Ms. Steed was about to take over. Well, just put, just put it like this, okay? I've never been one to run away from burning building. I wasn't even three feet tall. I already already knew that I was gonna be a firefighter. I was gonna be a trailblazer. I was gonna be a difference maker. As a nurse, I chose to get into the emergency room and critical care because you're troubleshooting, you're solving for problems, you're, you're dealing with crises. I chose to go be, become a big four consultant where I've traveled the world solving problems. For more than half of my uh, leadership experience, I've been a transformational expert. 
Crisis is innate, is natural to me. Quite frankly, I'm good at it. If not me, to help navigate through, then who? Being a Black woman, being a Black professional, being someone who has definitely worked her way up, I, I don't think that I've seen the last of that adversity. In all of my experiences, and I've had some great ones, I'm born and raised in Chicago, but I feel right at home here. And I'm I, and I feel like the I'm not in this alone just because of the legacy that is being built. This is not just for me. I don't just represent Dr. Erica Steed. I represent all of the voices that are, that are around and I represent what the next generation is going to actually look like. We all have to make this count and we all have to make this work. It's time to step back into Dr. Angela Neal Barnett's office. I know you've missed her, and there's a lot to unpack from these past three episodes on healthcare. Dr. Angela says that the stories shared on the podcast have been harrowing, but not just in their disturbing details. There was another woman having major migraines, another woman of color screaming at the top of her lungs and I'm bleeding out and neither one of us are being attended to. That honestly was the scariest point of my life. Like this little baby just came in my life. My mother then went to a nurse in charge and said, I need to talk to you because they're going to kill my daughter. The fact was that these are not outlier stories. All of us know Black women who tell similar stories. I'm glad you said that because I think it's very difficult to have data to really share with the audience and say, these are not the outliers. These are the, this is the lived experience of many, many Black women in the healthcare system in Cleveland and elsewhere. Because many people who listen to those stories may think in their mind, oh, well, those are just the extremes. Those are the outliers. As someone who listens to Black women who have gone through the healthcare system, these are our stories. In fact, sometimes I'm listening and I have to pause and think to myself, didn't I just hear this? Is she telling me the story uh, again? And I realized, no, this is her story, but you heard it last week and you heard it the week before and the week before that. And if we went back decades and decades and decades, those women would probably tell us the same stories. It's interesting to me, though, that when we were talking about uh, Miss Arnell Hendricks, that when you said when you heard her story, it made you think about how much things had not changed. And when I initially listened to her story, and then I think about now we have Dr. Erica Steed, who's now running Metro Health, the hospital where Miss Arnell trained to be a nurse all those years ago, that that represents, that shows how much has changed. The fact that we are still first and onlys. I mean, she was a first and only. You talk to these doctors who are first and onlys. And now Dr. Erica Steed. It's, for, it's, it's, the, first the, first, it's the first. It's the first. And only in Cleveland. Yeah. So I, I think that there has been some progress. But what I take away from the stories is... I know what you are going through. 
And I know that it is easy to get weary, but know that there are those who came before you and those who have come after you and that change will come and is coming. You know, one of the things about Jasmine and birthing a beautiful is that what they provide those women with is the fact that when they are giving birth, they are not alone. And many of them would be, except for the work that those doulas do. Racism is what is causing Black babies to die, and that racial bias in healthcare systems are what is causing moms to die. What I have determined in myself is that we can't change hearts and minds, and that's how we're going to be there to hold our clients' hands all the steps of the way. I was recently interviewed by a major media outlet, and they were talking about the use of doulas. And they said, well, doulas are for rich white women. And do you think that this you know, could really work for black women? Really? And I, said, <laughs> and I said, that's not been my experience, having worked with Birthing Beautiful. So that's not, that has not been my experience, that doulas are inherent and natural in the Black community. And we are simply coming back to what has been our heritage. There's no need for us to sacrifice ourselves, to sacrifice our babies. As Black mothers, we want better for our children than we have for ourselves. And if we think about it in that way, starting out with our children coming into the world with whoever you have in the birthing room and a doula, what better way to welcome them to the world? Well, Dr. Bradley talked about a lot about the social determinants of health. Yes. The stressors and the strife that people have outside of the healthcare system. When you're, you know, when maybe you don't have a car to get to the doctor, or maybe there's lead pipes in your house, or maybe the air is bad in your neighborhood. Those are all social determinants of health. And she kept pointing to those as some of the reasons. Yeah, social determinants of health are, I ain't got none. I ain't got no food. I ain't got no car. I ain't got no house. And I ain't got nobody who looks at me and respects me for who I am as a Black woman. These things have their roots in racism. So to the Black women listening to this podcast, would you say to them, make sure you get a Black health professional, a Black doctor if you can? And if you can't, make sure you take along an advocate. And if that's not possible, then I think one of the things that we have to start doing is training Black women how to be advocates for themselves. We can also train how to advocate in medical situations when you believe racism is at play. Is there like a little bit you could share about that right now? Sure, sure. One of the things that we always teach people is action planning. What is the problem? What do you want to happen? Here's what, here's the problem. Here's what I want to happen. 
how do you make that happen? And, you know, you're in a group, so you're thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I make this happen? What happens if you get stuck, if it doesn't go the way that it goes? And the planning around that. And then practice that. And we know from the literature uh, that this is helpful. We know in terms of racism, it's very helpful. One of the things that adolescents are trained in are what are you going to do when someone calls you the N-word? And many of us think, oh, it's not going to happen. And then it happens. And so... And then you're flabbergasted. Yeah, and then you're, you're caught flabbergasted. Yeah. And so we can do the same thing in terms of our health care. We can practice. And in our own work, we find that, yes, when they practice, when they action plan, and they're doing it with other women, it makes a difference. I went in there and, you know, what? just like we practice, this is what I, I, I did. So write it down. So have that plan yeah, written have, down when you go in the doctor's absolutely, office. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and you practice and, 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 and you practice with a positive outcome. If it's not a positive outcome, you come back. What went wrong? OK, so what do I need to do to achieve the outcome that I want? And the outcome is very simple for most black women. I want someone to listen to me and I want to be heard. So do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with the audience, with the Black women in the audience around navigating this healthcare system, whether it's here in Cleveland or wherever, the biases and things that we have to navigate? Trust your gut. If it sounds wrong, it probably is wrong. And so ask the questions. Trust your gut. Advocate. Bring an advocate with you. And if you're not able to do that, practice. Practice what you want to say, what you want to, to know. And every Black woman who's listening to the sound of my voice deserves to be heard. Next time on Living for We. I was gifted and talented. I graduated the top tier of my class, but I was told that I had to take remedial courses at Howard. At Cleveland Heights, a lot of people place more value on the white student's education. To come into this space that was not built for me, that was intentionally designed to keep us where we are on the bottom of everything. But here we are killing it in these spaces designed to kill us. We're hitting the books and diving into the world of education and school for Black girls and women in Cleveland. Voicemails from our listeners continue to roll in, and we're even hearing from people outside of Cleveland. Here's a recent message we received from a listener based in Southern Alabama. The medical system isn't fair to Black people there either, and her family had to pay the price. My husband recently died due to negligence of a doctor. Even after I tried to have my voice heard, my requests were denied. They released my husband with a blood clot 
way before they should have. And their justification was, he is a strong, healthy guy. He should be okay. One day after he was released from the hospital, he died. And this is not the first time that we've experienced this treatment in this area. Physicians in this area take our lives for granted. And operating in this system is really hard. If you're a Black woman in Cleveland and want to share your thoughts, leave a voicemail at 216-223-8312. That's 216-223-8312. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us. You can find more episodes of Living for We on ideastream.org slash livingforwe and wherever you get your podcasts. Living for We is part of the Connecting the Dots Between Race and Health Initiative from IdeaStream Public Media, produced by Evergreen Podcasts and made possible by generous support from the Dr. Donald J. Goodman and Ruth Weber Goodman Philanthropic Fund of the Cleveland Foundation. The Living for We team includes myself, Marlene Harris-Taylor, host and executive producer, Hannah Ray Leach as our lead producer, and Hey Fran Hay as producer and creative director. Chichi and Kimra and Bethany Studenik of Enlightened Solutions are our researchers, data analysts, and community partners. We get production help from Stephanie Chekolinski. Our original music, including our theme song, is by Cleveland artist Afi Scruggs. Our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you soon.